It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Sunday, July 3rd, 2022. I'm Jessica Rosenthal. What are Democrats' plans to hang on to their majorities in the House and Senate this fall as they fight back predictions of a red wave and a historical precedent of losing seats while inflation soars and the president's poll numbers fall? Can you hold on to those swing voters at a time when so many people are experiencing discontent and identify it in terms of issues like inflation and say, you know, I don't like inflation or I don't like the spike in violent crime in the country and I want to take it out on the people in charge. And right now, the people in charge are the Democrats. I'm Jared Halpern. What the 2022 results will mean for the 2024 White House hopefuls. On both the Republican side and the Democratic side, if you did have a kind of an open seat election, and I mean, Trump's not the incumbent, but he's kind of a quasi-incumbent in the Republican Party structure, you'd probably see a flood of candidates entering on both sides. And so the decisions by both of those men are, are quite important in terms of setting the field. This is the Fox News Rundown from Washington. Depending on who you ask, either a small red wave is coming this fall in midterm elections or a giant one. And the confidence of the pundits and politicians on this may vary based on political preference. You can see it already now in 2022, Democrats scrambling, seeing the polling that's out there. There is going to be a giant red wave and that red wave starts in 2022. South Carolina Republican Congresswoman Nancy May spoke to Fox and Friends first before she won her primary race in June. But if you listen to the co-hosts of The View, it's not a done deal. I think people will be more informed. And so I do agree with Joy. We don't know that that red wave is coming because that red wave is based on a big lie. But even Massachusetts Democratic Senator Elizabeth Warren recently warned of a shellacking if Democrats don't do something big, pass something big that helps the American people. I think we're going to be in real trouble if we don't get up and deliver, then I believe that Democrats are going to lose. Now, historically, the precedent is the president's party loses House seats in midterms. Kyle Kondik, managing editor at Sabato's Crystal Ball, says on average, the president's party loses about 27 seats in midterms. History tells us that the president's party struggles in the midterm, and that can be exacerbated by having an incumbent president who's unpopular, as Joe Biden is. Uh, And so I think Republicans have to feel really good about their position in the House. As the president's poll numbers sink, he's been using some new language, adding the word ultra to MAGA and linking nearly all Republicans to former President Trump. This is not your father's Republican Party, as I said. But what will individual Democrats in individual districts do? Will they imitate White House messaging or distance themselves from elements of the party? This is a difficult season for Democrats. Juan Williams is a Fox News political analyst. Obviously, history dictates that midterm elections for The incumbent party, and here I refer to the incumbent president, but in the case of 2022, Democrats are also, by a slim margin, but still the majority of the House of Representatives and technically the U.S. Senate. So you have Democrats in control. And what we're seeing in terms of the political landscape fits with all the historical precedent going back to 
you know, 2012 with Obama, 2018 with Trump, and now 22 with Biden, which is that typically the incumbent party gets swallowed. I mean, just beat up big time in midterms, huge losses. So when we look at people who indicate, you know, what do you think about the direction of the country? Very pessimistic. Another indication that likely the Democrats are in for a whooping. Now, how can they turn that around becomes the question. How do they identify with the large sense of angst, disappointment, disapproval in the American mind? Well, first of all, you got to boil it down to who are you talking to? Remember, you're not going to get Republicans to suddenly vote for Democrats. In this country, given the high level of political polarization after Donald Trump, it's not likely you're going to persuade a lot of Republicans to shift. Uh, So you've got to assume that Republican districts, red states are going to stay red. What you can do and what you can try to do is focus on swing voters. And there are swing voters. There are people who voted for Obama, who subsequently voted for Trump, and there are people who then subsequently voted for Biden. The question is, can you hold on to those swing voters at a time when so many people are experiencing discontent and identify it in terms of issues like inflation and say, you know, I don't like inflation or I don't like the spike in violent crime in the country. And I want to take it out on the people in charge. And right now, the people in charge are the Democrats. Juan, if you're a Republican campaigning, you know, it's easy to to say, oh, you don't like inflation? Blame the Democrats spending. Don't like high gas prices? Blame, you know, the Green New Deal or green policies. How does a Democrat respond to that, you know, with brevity, you know, in the soundbite form, right? And does the answer depend on if you are Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin or Abigail Spanberger in toss-up seats in Michigan and Virginia versus like a senator like Raphael Warnock in red Georgia? Well, obviously, you got to pay attention to your district. If you're a member of Congress, you think about Spanberger, for example, in suburban Richmond, Virginia. It's a purple state, just elected a Republican governor, though, and has been trending blue. So here is an opportunity for her to speak to the specific concerns of her district. How does she do that? Well, at this point, constituent services are really important. I think sometimes they go under the uh, cover for most people because we don't talk about it as political strategists. But believe me, if you live in her district and you're an activist, and activists count for a lot, they know whether or not that member responds to their specific needs. Is it an older population, a younger population? Do they want, you know, make sure that their Medicare, that their Social Security Um, that, you know, attention to their specific needs. If they're a veteran and they have a need and they come through the congressional office, are they heard? That word spreads locally. So let's imagine that she's good in terms of constituent services, because that's just essential. If she is, then it becomes a larger conversation and she's got to speak to the national mood, but do so in terms of her district. And again, If you're talking about inflation, if you're talking about a spike in violence, if you're talking about immigration, if you're talking about education, critical race theory, then all of a sudden, Abigail Spanberger has to make it very clear that even as a Democrat, she doesn't identify with, let's say, defund the police. 
She's got to be very clear about who she is. And then secondly, and this is a very important message for Democrats in this year, 2022, they've got to make it very clear that they view the opponent as worthy of your attention as a voter. Normally, midterms are a referendum on the incumbents. And that means the Democrats, as I've said, the incumbent in power party. But for Spanberger and others, they're going to make the case, wait a second, look at the radical right. Look at the people who stormed the Capitol. Are you ready to give them power again? Do you think they deserve your power? And she's going to say, having experienced the moment when they tried to undo the Constitution, 250 plus years of government order, do you want that kind of chaos? Do you want Trumpian authoritarian rule reinstated at this time? And in her case, and in many cases, the people running against her are people who subscribe to the idea that the 2020 election was the big steal. And again, she can point out there is no evidence of that. But those people are the option to me. It goes to the point, right, that that so many of the Republican primary winners uh, do not trust the election results in 2020. You're saying that the fact that those people are winning their primaries and becoming those those opponents to the incumbent is is what easy, easy fodder is is an easy pivot. It's an important pivot. I don't know if it's easy because it's you know, people are focused on the gas pump, inflation, the grocery bill uh, or feeling anxiety in some areas with the rise in gun violence or frustration over the lack of action to rein in gun violence in the country. Um, But it's an important pivot for Democrats to remind voters that it's not that they are running against a blank slate that might be better, but to say, I'm defining the opponent as someone who doesn't believe in American democracy. They don't believe in the results of the 2020 election, and they tried to undo the Electoral College result to put their own person in power despite the will of the American people, the will of the voters. Juan, is, is another part of the strategy for Democrats, you know, distancing yourself from the president or the party? Like, you know, some of the more vulnerable Democrats have said they, they disagreed with the president on the border and like Title 42. And Tim Ryan, as you know, running for Senate in Ohio, was asked if, if he would want the president to campaign with him. And he said after pausing for a few seconds, you know, he'd welcome any support, but that he's the candidate running. How much strategy is there in that if you're if you're vulnerable, if you're in a swing district and you're reading the room that people are unhappy with certain things? Well, I think it's very important to read the room in the case of someone, you know, let's take Ohio. He's going to say, listen, I'm not sure how Biden might play in this room at this moment, but let's not ignore the reality. Biden would be a tremendous attention getter in terms of media if he came to visit and campaign. And he's also a tremendous fundraiser. So that's something to keep in mind. It might be that you want to think about the timing. So the room might be cold right now. It might get hot a little later, and then it might get cool or some other temperature down the road in which Biden would fit ideally. But the point is, you've got to be able to read the room and understand that Biden is unpopular in many areas of the country right now. But again, be very careful, and you'll hear this from strategists. Who is Biden unpopular with? 
we know he's unpopular with Republicans. But again, you come back to those swing voters. And, you know, a lot of times we don't define who that swing voter is. But if you go into, you know, a suburban Richmond district or you go into Ohio, you're not going to get ardent Republican voters. They're locked in as opponents of a Democratic candidate for House, for Senate, for whatever. But if you're talking to a white suburban female, if you really want it to boil it down and watch the TV ads, listen to your radio ads, understand where the dollars are being focused, it would be on that white female suburbanite. She's a mom. She's involved with the schools because of her kids. She's someone who cares about taxes because she, if she's not paying the bills at the kitchen table, she's going to the mall. And she is just coming back, if you're thinking about the fall election, from having to buy school supplies and school clothes and all that. So these things matter. And that's the audience you're speaking to. And right now, that audience is available to Democrats. The question is, what's the message that can persuade that person, given Biden's lack of popularity, given the difficulty with the economy, what can persuade that person to say, you know what? I'm fed up. I really want to throw a spitball at the people in power. But hold on a second. Why wouldn't I? And that's that's what the Democratic candidate has to convey. Here's the reason not to throw your spitball at us. Let's talk about abortion. Now that the Supreme Court has upheld Mississippi's law and overturned Roe versus Wade, how much will that impact Democrats messaging and how they fight this fall? I think it's really going to be a dominant message from Democrats that the Supreme Court has acted contrary to public sentiment on this issue. Right now, it's more than two thirds of Americans support legal abortion and leaving Roe v. Wade in place. So the court's actions are evidence that the Democrats can offer that a conservative Supreme Court, six to three, has run over precedent, run over 50 years of settled law in order to achieve a conservative aim, which is making abortion illegal in terms of not being a constitutional right and leaving right. it up to states. To the states. So she, they will say, hey, wait a second. Again, look at what the option is. More of this kind of anti-democratic, anti-public sentiment, anti-women's rights and you have every reason to be excited and send a message to the Supreme Court that you don't like it. And you can do that by voting for me. One more question on abortion. Um, Juan, there are a lot of polls out about abortion, as you know. It seems like many do, do not think that Roe should be overturned. In fact, a recent Fox News poll found 65 percent think Roe should be left as is. However, the Fox poll also found just 44% think abortion should be legal all or most of the time. 54% think it should be illegal all or most of the time. Most of the time is really critical there, right, in, that, in, in those polling numbers. But a Gallup poll found in June, just over a quarter of voters feel a candidate must share their views on abortion in order to get their vote. Um, this was obviously before the Supreme Court ruled, but after the leaked decision. That's, that's I guess, higher, 27% isn't a lot, but it is something and it is higher in, in Gallup's history. And I, I think I'm just wondering how generally motivating of an issue is abortion, especially when we're in this environment, like inflation and recessionary talk. 
Well, you know what? This is, again, depends on who you're talking about and who you're talking to, Jessica. <laughs> uh, if you're talking about people who oppose abortion rights, people who call themselves pro-life, but I know that's their language, but I'm going to use it just for this moment. Sure. Uh, it is a defining litmus test issue. They vote on abortion. And so you're talking about often evangelical white Christians. Um, they, they, they make it their issue. Right. Now, they are in a minority as compared to people who say that abortion and Roe v. Wade should be left in place in general. But those people don't necessarily vote on abortion and don't necessarily think that the politics uh, in terms of the Congress or the White House or the Senate is about abortion. So although they may be greater in number, when it comes to the actual tally of votes, it's the smaller group that is so impassioned that has carried the day. Now, with the possibility of court rulings one way or another, what we're seeing is greater attention, people in the streets saying they support abortion rights. And the question is, do those people vote on that issue? Is it the issue for them? How do you think the president is doing on defense right now? You know, he's calling the the whole Republican Party, you know, ultra MAGA. Um, he says, this isn't your father's Republican Party. And, and he and the White House spokespeople, both Saki and um, Karine Jean-Pierre, uh, have repeatedly pointed to, you know, Florida Senator Rick Scott's tax plan, um, saying that that sort of represents all of what Republicans are about. What do you make of how the president and his team are sort of handling uh, the fight? You know, I think they're in a difficult spot because I think there is so much discontent in the land, so much as we've talked about people saying we think the country's headed in the wrong direction, so much polarization. And right now, if you listen to Republican media, if you listen to Republican politicians, it's not that they have answers. It's not that they have an agenda that says, oh, yeah, here's what we would do about inflation. Uh, if you say, what would you do about gun violence? It's not that they are you know, ready with their own prescription. They don't have one. But what they do have in this moment is their status as the outsider who is also discontented and attacking what they argue is the elite establishment Democratic Party. So you've got to get, if you are the president, you've got to communicate with the voters that, hey, we're not the elites. We represent you. We're the party of the working class man and woman. We're the party that understands and cares about people who are worried about violence. We're the party of people who understand that if you're worried right now about COVID, that we want to make sure you have a vac you know, vaccine or that you have protections, et cetera. We're trying to get us back to normal. That's the argument that the Democrats are trying to make at this critical moment. And I must say, even now, the election is, you know, four or five months away. But even now, voter positions are being cemented. Hmm. And now is when the message has to be delivered. You cannot wait until September, Labor Day, to start your messaging. That messaging has to be active right now. How worried should Democrats be or are they about Latinos? I mean, we know it's not like a monolithic block um, that, that all votes the same way, right? Hispanic voters vary greatly, but there are 
some polls that show that, that some are shifting away from Democrats, not necessarily in huge numbers, but in a statistically significant way. Um, we just saw Myra Flores win a special election in South Texas, a Republican, Mexican-born woman married to a border agent. She is now the area's congresswoman. That, of course, could change in the fall, but there are a lot of articles <laughs> saying that, that Democrats have a Latino problem. Is that accurate? And what do Democrats do about it? Well, it's always a matter of measure. So when they say that, what they're saying is that the differential between Republicans and Democrats in terms of the Latino vote has shrunk. It's not that it's gone away. It's not that it's now most Latinos are voting for Republicans, but the margin has lessened. And why has that margin lessened? Well, there are lots of issues to be discussed, obviously, just like any other voter, whether they were white, black, Asian, American, Indian, they're concerned about inflation. They're concerned about what they see as, you know, more violence. We just saw that terrible shooting down in Uvalde, again, affecting directly the Latino community. So they are part of this larger sense of what's going on and have the Democrats spoken to us directly about issues of concern to us. And if you're down in South Texas, you're obviously concerned about the immigration issue. uh, And you should not assume that Latinos are of one mind. So all of that is in play. And I think it's right to say the numbers don't lie that even on the cultural issues, and remember many of the in the Latino community Catholics, very strong family people, they wonder about issues like, you know, gender identity and are the Democrats more identifying with people who are to them very strange and different rather than identifying with them as family people in support of community growth. That's what Democrats have to do to win back the Hispanic vote. Juan Williams, thank you so much for your time. Jessica, always a pleasure. I'm glad to be able to help. I'm Guy Benson. Join me weekdays at 3 p.m. Eastern as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and guests. Listen live on the Fox News app or get the free podcast at GuyBensonShow.com. It's hard to think about 2022 without thinking ahead to 2024. After all, the strength of both 2024 frontrunners at this early stage will be tested in November as former President Trump, still the most influential Republican, holds rallies and gets involved in key races across the country. And like most midterms, the elections in so many places will serve as a referendum on the party in power, testing President Biden's political strength. All the while, there is a pretty obvious question. Will 2024 be a rematch of 2020, another Biden versus Trump election? The midterms could help answer that. So let's not waste any time talking 2024 and bring in Kyle Kondik, a regular voice on our Democracy 2022 coverage and the managing editor of Sabato's Crystal Ball at the University of Virginia's Center for Politics. As, as weak as Biden has seemed lately, I don't necessarily think he would face some sort of strong challenge from within his own party if he ran again. Um, you know, we just we just saw recently that uh, you know Bernie Sanders, of course, has run for president a couple times. You know, he said he would support Biden as the incumbent president, um, and uh, you know, you wouldn't expect other major Democrats to run. And on the Republican side, you know, Trump may or may not 
be strong enough to uh, push away, you know, potential challengers. But I think for on both the Republican side and the Democratic side, if you did have a kind of an open seat election, and I mean, Trump's not the incumbent, but he's kind of a quasi incumbent mm-hmm. in the Republican Party structure, you would probably see a flood of candidates entering on both sides. And so the decisions by both of those men are, are quite important in terms of setting the field. You know, uh, let's start with with um, the incumbent president, President Biden, um, because the White House is he's going to run. He said he's going to run. He has not indicated he's not going to run. Where do these sort of rumors or or hints that he's not going to run come from? Uh, Because they they seem to be coming primarily from the Democratic side of the aisle, don't they? Yeah, it seems like there are some Democrats who basically don't want Biden to run again um, and are, uh, you know, would like to see a fresh face in 2024 and are concerned about Biden's age, et cetera. Um, And I'll also say that, you know, maybe there are things going on behind the scenes that we don't know about that are getting reflected in some of these um, uh, reports or comments that that come out. But, you know, from the White House's perspective, even if Biden has decided not to run again, and there's no indication he, he has made a decision like that, but even if he did... Um, there's no reason to let that news come out now because as soon as it, as soon as it, it would become clear that Biden was running again, if in fact he doesn't, um, he'd be a lame duck, and uh, uh, it would. And then forget uh, about your legislative agenda. Right, and I, mean, I think Biden already has kind of some trouble breaking through. You know, if if one of Trump's problems that it was that he was sort of ever present and too much in people's lives, kind of wonder if Biden has sort of the opposite problem in that in the midst of. A lot of challenges. He doesn't seem as he just doesn't seem to to be kind of dominating the conversation the way that Trump did. And again, you know, in some ways we we elect new presidents to correct for what we see as the problems with the past president. And I think that Biden was is someone who you know was never going to be as 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 public and in your face as Trump was. But uh, I just wonder if um, it just seems like that there are these problems going on, be it inflation or gas prices or what have you, and that, um, you know, the the, the White House is not necessarily seen as having answers to those things. But um, whatever Biden's influence problems are now, he'd have even less influence if it became clear he wasn't running again. So um, uh, there's just no reason for the White House to take any posture other than what they've already said, which is that he's running again. And if you're a Democrat, is there a natural successor to Biden? Is it the vice president, Kamala Harris? I mean, that that's generally the the way that the, the torch is passed. Yeah. And, and look, I think that, that Harris would, you know, you certainly would expect her to run in the event of uh, a Biden retirement. Um, and I would imagine Harris probably would start as the polling front runner. And, and then the question is whether she's strong enough to um push other candidates out and, and you know, push them away from running. And I don't think that people look at Harris as a incredibly imposing figure within the Democratic Party. Um, but, you know, one thing that you would have to take take note of is that, you know, part of the reason that Biden won was that, or won the nomination, was that he was so strong with Black voters. And I could imagine that Harris, as the incumbent Black vice president, uh, would, would also be very strong with Black voters um, in a way that she wasn't in her run in 2020. And, and that would be something that her potential rivals would have to um would have to try to, you know, uh, uh, figure out and, 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 you know, try to tamp down on that support. So um, I do think you'd probably see a, a fair number of other Democrats running because I just don't think Harris is strong enough um, to dissuade a bunch of people run from running. I don't think she's like, like, for instance, Al Gore in 2000, you know, he was, he did have a challenge from, from, from Bill Bradley, but, right. um, but Gore was the leader the whole time and, and won the nomination relatively easily. Uh, this, I think, is, it would be a different situation. Let's talk about 
Donald Trump, who still believes that he won the, the 2020 election. So is that if he decides to run what, what he's running on? I mean, he would have to sort of present an alternative to Biden, right? Yeah, I, th- I think so. Um, and, you know, I do think that presidential elections, you know, ideally are kind of forward looking, but but I think Trump would be very much backward looking. Uh, I mean, that's how he's been in so much, you know, he's been he's been so present for a former president and yeah. um, so public about his his complaints. And there's, you know, there, there are a lot of complaints and not a whole lot of evidence coming from the former president and uh, and his camp. So it'd be just be interesting to see how he would actually run if, in fact, he does run. And, you know, there, there are a lot of indications that he is going to run again, but we'll just have to wait and see um, when and if he actually jumps that's, in. I mean, that's fascinating, isn't it? Like he's right. every indication that he's running. Um, right. And, and, you know, there's been what some are you scattered- looking for to say, like, that's it? He's go- he's like, is it him saying I'm running? Yeah, I, I think so. I think, you know, and and uh, I think that from from a Democrat's perspective, you know, they seem to want to keep trying to tie other tie Republicans to Trump and sort of take advantage of Trump being a very public ex-president and someone who, uh, you know, is certainly a lightning rod um, political figure. And of course, if Trump was actually a nominee for pre- or, or was an announced candidate for president prior to the midterm, well, that would probably make Trump a little bigger deal in the midterm. And yeah. Democrats desperately want to make this election something other than a referendum on the state of the country and on Biden, because Biden's unpopular and people are pessimistic about the state of the country right now. So if you're, I don't know, Ron DeSantis, Mike Pompeo, Mike Pence, 25 or three other Republicans um, who are making regular trips to New Hampshire and Iowa, um, what, what are you, I mean, do you wait? I mean, how long can you wait? Uh, it takes usually about a year and a half to run for president. Yeah, I mean, you know, you'd expect, um, you, you would typically expect there to be People announcing for president, uh, you know, right after the midterm. Right maybe, after, yeah, I was going to say, maybe, like, maybe, maybe, maybe the they wait until like the new year. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah, and, and and look, I mean, the longer Trump waits, the more it might kind of push others to wait too. Um, that's sort of the advantage, I guess, that Trump has in waiting is that um, if it if it's sort of unclear as to whether he's running again, he sort of you know again he freezes out some folks. But there may be some people who just decide to run anyway. Yeah, I would think that. If Trump were to be defeated in a Republican primary, which I mean, if he'd certainly start as the favorite, then you'd, you'd see how things develop. Mm-hmm. But um, I think he would bet really benefit from a divided field like the way he did in 2016. Uh, you know, he, he's uh, uh, if it's if it's like, you know, DeSantis versus Trump and it's like just them and they're the only two like real credible candidates. You know, maybe that's a situation where you could actually imagine DeSantis winning. But if it's like DeSantis, Pence, Nikki Haley, <laughs> 10 other candidates and Donald Trump, you'd say, oh, well, Trump is actually in better position there because the vote would be splintered in such a way that he would be advantaged. Of course, we saw from the, you know, the, the, the 2016 primary that the way that the Republican delegates are allocated and awarded in uh, on their side, it, 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 you know, if you're a plurality winner, you're still getting a lot of the delegates. You're getting more of the delegates that maybe the share, your share of the vote might, you might think otherwise. So, um, a, a big splintered field, I think, would actually help, uh, you know, help Trump. Do these decisions that both uh, President Biden and, and former President Trump have to make, um, do they look at these midterm elections? I mean, the expectation is that the Democrats are, are going to likely lose uh, majorities in both the House and Senate. 
But does, does you know, if you're Trump, do you look at maybe how your candidates do? If, if you're Biden, do you look at, uh, you know, is it more progressives that do better, centrists that do better? Is that data sort of helpful in, in gauging how successful you can be in a presidential election? I personally don't think the midterm really should matter for the for, for the president presidential because there have been so many instances in history if in, you know if in fact the democrats do poorly in november which is my expectation too but we'll see um you know midterms are not really predictive of the future now i, I do think that you know since trump has been so public about making you know endorsements and intervening into these contested races you know if he if he continues to, i mean he's, he's won a lot but he has lost some of these races you know if he you know, if he loses more races down down the road here, you know, maybe that makes him look a little bit weaker than people otherwise expect. And maybe, you know, rivals perceive that weakness as as weakness in a in a presidential primary context. Uh, I don't know if they'd be right or wrong to do so, but but you know, it's clear that everyone's watching this stuff. So and, you know, on the on the Democratic side, um I, I don't know, it, you know, I don't think what happens in, in the midterm is necessarily all that meaningful. Um, but, uh, you know, maybe maybe it does get to the point where Biden appears weak enough that there's another Democrat, a credible Democrat who thinks they could actually challenge him in the in the primary. Um, and, you know, maybe you have like a, you know, like a like a rerun of the you know Jimmy Carter, Ted Kennedy race from 1980, where, you know, Carter was also a weakened incumbent and attracted a strong challenger in Kennedy. You know, Carter ended up winning. But. Uh, a, a, a primary challenge to a sitting president is historically sometimes a, a sign of weakness. Um, I, that doesn't seem to be on the horizon at this point, but maybe it could be later on if uh, if, if there are more and more Democrats who kind of lose confidence in Biden. Well, we'll have plenty of data points between now and then, but it's never too early to start thinking about the, those presidential races. They, they come up on us awfully fast uh, every four years. So, Kyle, appreciate the time. Uh, have a great summer, friend. Thank you. That will do it for this week's Fox News Rundown from Washington. Next week, President Biden returns from a major summit with G7 and NATO leaders. We will look at new support for Ukraine and if the alliance is any closer to expanding its membership. Until then, stay safe, stay healthy, and stay in touch with those you care about. For all of us at Fox News Radio, thank you for listening. I'm Jared Halpern from Washington. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.